Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 35. I'm not surprised you made it off planet, Ejok. Truly, I'd have been disappointed if you hadn't. He grinned through swollen lips, showing a dark gap in the front where one of his pearly, pearly whites used to live. Dell had had good aim. That sounds like a compliment, Mr. Small, and you know how free you are with those. <laughs> and what they're worth when I am, he laughed. He actually did laugh. The fact that he could do so under the circumstances scared me to no end. Before you ask, I do, in fact, have Ms. Maharn's property. Oh, I had no doubt about that either. We turned around in mid-air to go back for it when the entire mountain lit up. Very, very impressive. Eh, invention's mother and all that. He just chuckled for a bit, then stared into the pickup, still smiling but with serious eyes. You will give up that data block, Ejok, either to me or to those approaching. Understand that I'm asking. They won't. They'll shatter your ship to pieces and sift through the drifting scrap. The block is specially reinforced, a very tough piece of tech. They'll track it down, but you'll be dead. All in a day's work for Baron Deskew's forces. I expect we'll get the usual torrent of power-down orders about, uh, what is it, 55 minutes from now? Count on it, he answered, still grinning like a gap-toothed idiot. I have to admit, it was a little hard to take him seriously like that. You're not a technical man, Mr. Small, I started off. So take my word for it when I say that destroying a block, even this block, is not at all difficult for a determined engineering crew with access to a well-stocked machine shop, both of which we have on this ship. A bench lay session or a simple plasma bath would leave you and the Baron with very little to recover. For that matter, I think we have some magnesium powder aboard, which can be fun to play with, too. His face drooped a bit, and his smile became brittle, even shaky. That would be a bad move, trust me. This time, I was the one who laughed, because his grin was now undead, animated but lacking in life, or even freshness. Ha <laughs> ha! Trust you! Even Deskew shouldn't trust you! You want the block in your hands, not his! Ejok, look, we have a narrowly closing opportunity to help each other here. Walk me through it all, I pushed on, breezily, hurriedly. As the state's top bookkeeper, Ms. Maharn engaged in some truly massive embezzlement, with the money squirreled away in off-world accounts. Simultaneously, as head of the secret police, you pursued a policy of terror and murder. Your role was to actually foment rebellion, 
give the people urgent reasons to rise up. The revolution would act as cover for the theft. Still grinning, he wore a mad mask and watched me with eyes like talons. But I was having fun, and I wouldn't have stopped for all the galaxy. It was a wonderful plan. The peasants revolt, Billings gets kicked out or executed, and... Oh no! Where'd all the money go? The old government must have stolen it, or the new government did, or the new new government. It's everyone's fault, and everyone blames everyone. Everyone but General Kryle Bacon, of course, because he's long dead and forgotten. How am I doing? I'd swear his face even displayed fear now, though you had to look past the grimace to see it. How many have died, Mr. Small? Do you even know? I'd say thousands at least, with more to come. And all for this? I held up the block to the vid pickup. His eyes got big and he hissed with an intake of breath. The scale of your ambition, I continued, is both impressive and appalling. On some level, you might even deserve praise for such single-minded dedication to personal gain. But I choke on the words. You have a badly diseased mind, one that no amount of gene sculpting was able to cure. While you have the data block and a way out, the man replied. His eyes were still wild, but he ignored my badgering. His growing desperation, I guess, bringing on a practice calm. We have the access codes. Let us come aboard. We'll leave this place and share the wealth. We could all walk away happy. Like Delman folks will, demanded Carmi, who'd been monitoring this nonsense. Her anger was like deep space itself, cold and dark and quiet. Never, you will never step aboard this ship again, Mr. Small. And if I can ever bring harm to you or your lover in the future, I most certainly shall. I'm restraining myself from ordering my gunner to wipe you out of the sky, because that would be murder, and I leave such things to subhumans like yourself. But if you push my tolerance, I'll have a lapse in judgment that everyone aboard this ship will applaud. Do you understand me, sir? We want you dead. So keep your distance and keep your filthy deals. Then she cut Griselda's feed. Well, if you wanted him to act, that was the way to do it, I said with my usual tact. Silence on channels, she barked, still livid. There wasn't much for it, so I busied myself with some auto-firing routines, a few quick sims of the initial moments that a theoretical exchange might follow, and other pre-skirmish stuff I had had in place for weeks already. I immersed myself in the S2, fine-tuning primary scenarios, adjusting numbers, and tweaking predictive algorithms. I checked and double-checked, compared and simulated. Superior was well out of its own attack range now, yet still within Griselda's. It would be a far shot for me, but nowhere near impossible. Flip, swipe, press, and wait. A silent boom. Gone. Back on Barlow... Alan Small, with the help of his disposables, had been deadly and efficient. 
Now he was in my battlefield, and I had but to reach out just to open my hand. As my captain had said, it would be murder. I felt pretty comfortable with the idea, all things considered. But it would come back on people I'd made the mistake of caring for. It would require a response from the Baron, since he was some sort of power in the system right now, and wasn't a captain responsible for the actions of her ship. Any blame would fall more to Carmi than me, to the owners as a whole, and to the ship. Yet the handsome, charming Alan Small held a claim on my rage. Oh yes, he most definitely did. With a start, I realized my hands were poised above the firing controls. They were shaking. I had disengaged the safeties. Missile packs were unlocked. The captain's commit code, still in my wrist comp from back on the mountain, now glowed a flashing red in the HUD. It only required a small movement, just a touch of my fingers. I sat there in a sweat, silent, sipping the last of my coffee, now cold. When the cup was empty, I dismissed the commit code, relocked missiles, and brought all safeties back up. I closed my eyes, trying to rest, trying not to move or think. Half an hour, 45 minutes. The switchboard buzzed. Off to one side of my goggle display, calls from dozens of ships, all bearing Imperial identifiers, showed urgently. There was even one with a little gold eagle next to it, which I guessed was the Baron's flagship. More minutes passed. Another hour. I finally dozed in my chair, asleep on duty. Nothing happened. I don't even know if Carmi replied to any of the hails. Nature then called at one point, suddenly and urgently, either from the meatloaf or as a side effect of all the meds. I switched over to the backup program, then fought with my emergency suit, not trusting its installed bio-waste bags in the slightest. I dashed to the nearest fresher, which happened to be the passenger one just off the common room. I waved to the ladies there and scuttled by without any dignity whatsoever. They seemed to find mirth in my haste, and I returned to gunnery afterwards with equal terseness. During all this, I listened in to command. Superior had been busy sending out encrypted messages. Ira couldn't crack them, but the contents weren't hard to guess. Small would have been talking to the flotilla to the Baron, spinning the universe around the facts and presenting himself, themselves, in the best possible light. Almost certainly, Griselda and her crew would end up in the darkest shadows of any such stories. Fifty-odd minutes to the Baron, a few minutes for him to digest the news and come up with a response, then fifty-odd back, with orders for Superior and new threats for Griselda. But that's not what came. Beep and flash, flash and beep, beep and flash. 
I saw it in the sea here's. A massive interference flag. I opened my sensor error logs for more details. They showed several external systems picking up overwhelming radio interference, completely blanketing non-quantum-based listening systems. All of them, NAV, PASS, ACT, and PROX, were showing a sudden blare. I tried to track it down, but couldn't find the source. It either had to be coming from very far off or... very close. Footsteps pounding along the companionway toward gunnery made it clear. When they tore it open, Ira was standing there with a handheld field indicator, while Elareda and Carmi trotted up behind. But I already had the data block out and in my hand. It's got a beacon, the commspech declared, shouted really. It's strong enough to blind us. Somebody just turned it on. It wasn't me. I stated defensively and handed it off to the captain like a hot potato. It must have a remote activator. Mr. Small, Carmi said with hate. He already knows we have it, and he wanted it back before anybody else found out. This has to be the Baron. Wait, wait, Ira interrupted, his eyes on the sensor. It stopped. The signal's gone. It's... no, okay, now it's just a steady pulse. The first radio burst would be for locking on. This one is for tracking. They'll know we have it in about 53 minutes and be able to follow us anywhere we go. We dump it then, Carmi pronounced, holding it up with edgy contemplation. That sounded like a great idea to my panicked ears. But it was Elareda, surprisingly enough, or maybe not, he was no dope, who was the voice of reason. It's the only bargaining chip we have. We may have to buy our way out of the system. If this Baron wants the thing so badly, we should just deliver it to him. Carmi's dark eyes were clouded with concentration. She looked from one to the other of us, then to the data block in her hand. Finally, she spoke into her calm. Gasto, my office, owner's meeting right now. She then waved the chief pilot to follow her and stalked back down the companionway, the dark data block clenched in her fist like she was off to a stoning. Tense vigils are draining and I returned to bed after another round of nothing new. I set an especially annoying alarm to wake me up in four hours' time. It required physically toggling a switch back in gunnery in order to shut it off. I figured, rightly as it turned out, that if I could just hit snooze and go back to sleep, I would. When my jawbone implants finally gave me my wake-up song, an obnoxious modern club style called Puka Puka, which I simply hated, I waved at the air futilely. I smacked at my wrist comp with increasing anger, but there was no way to stop it from bed. I think I felt even worse than before, exhausted, sore, and hungover. My ear throbbed, my head pounded, and I now had some deep muscle pain in my side and my legs that I hadn't felt before. And I still felt dirty, 
like I'd been wandering along a muddy scrub plain in my sleep. The music played in my head as I grabbed another quick shower. I just let the beat thump along as I tottered down to the galley. I grabbed a breakfast-type meal and one whole carafe of real coffee just for me. I encountered no one else the whole time. Though people chatted idly over various channels, I couldn't hear them clearly through the throbbing and music in my head, but it was nice to know they were there. Eventually, I padded back to my closet, flipped the noise off, in more ways than one, and just sighed in relief. Command, this is Gunnery. I'm back on station. Anything new? A Loretta had the con. Carmi was asleep. Everyone else was still up. The situation was quiet. I wanted to know what the offs had decided in their meeting, but he probably wouldn't tell me, even if it was nothing. Or maybe he would, but with a snideness I couldn't handle before my coffee. I just ate and sipped and let the world focus in. Eventually, I put the see hears back on, then brought up the S2 again, including all fine details and a stream of current targeting data. I mentioned how painful I felt to Ira at one point, and he promptly appeared at my door with his magic med bag. I passed on the stims this time around, but otherwise accepted a new strip for my head, two shots to the arm for I don't know what, and a liquid drink that tasted like cherry floor wax. He passed along some encouraging well wishes from Candy, and then was gone once again. And still there was nothing new. Other than a steady stream of stern advisories from the flotilla, we might have been the sole bubble of life in all the universe. I was tempted to pop into the common room and see how everyone was doing, but I was much more in the mood to sit and ponder over data streams and telemetry changes. Still, I checked with Rena via shipcom to let her know I was back in slow motion, in case she needed any help. She was with the passengers herself, and they sounded as thick as thieves in there. I could hear the others cluck and fuss off mic, wondering why I was working, why I wasn't in my cabin, taking it easy, and other such stuff that made me feel appreciated. I told her to call if there was anything I could do, then settled back. Superior had lost considerable distance to us, having no hope to match Griselda's extraordinary speed. It was already past the probable halfway point of its fuel load, but it kept coming nonetheless. Our lead was so good, in fact, engineering had recommended we back off on acceleration and just coast for now to save on our own fuel. Since we'd never bought that refill on the high dock, command agreed. The Noble Space Flotilla was approaching at a steady clip from the other direction. If the offs knew what to do about that problem, they had yet to share with anybody. I checked some updated numbers, which confirmed that if we maintained course, Deskew's ships would cut us off before we could make a safe jump. If we angled off sharply within the next few hours, we'd remain out of practical interdiction range, but still be vulnerable to physical attacks. Their missiles and energy weapons would be a threat up to the very moment of star jump, being of a general class designed to hit targets at great distances. 
I queried Ira about radio traffic to or from the gunboat, but he informed me that they were now employing a static cipher. This basically meant they were puking out a steady stream of white noise on all the relevant channels. Any actual communication bits and bobs would be wedged somewhere inside, hidden by oceans of chaotic mathematical garbage. I actually had a few old cipher keys for this sort of stuff in my personal inventory, but none of them worked. Considering its distance, Superior could be ignored as a credible threat. But the static cipher meant Small was talking. Whatever shifty crap he pulled next might be done in direct concert with the flotilla. On a whim, I rang up Candy down in cargo. I figured she would be there, and sure enough, she was running her usual inventory for the shift. Ben Roggenston and Sherry had rigged up an improvised seal made of strong sheet plastic. It allowed for just under one standard atmosphere in the doorless hold, enough to make your ears pop if you stepped in, but otherwise safe. Still, all iris valves down there had to stay closed as a precaution, and suits had to be worn. I asked if she could find the time for a little research, and I laid out my request. Well, I'll try, Ejok, but it's not my specialty. Del would would have been the one to ask. I know, Candy, I told her, purposely keeping my voice level and clear, because I wasn't going to think about him right then, and I needed others not to do so as well, not until this was over. Can you maybe just look at some trade rates and shipping volumes? I gave her the details. Oh, sure, I can do that much. It would be all in their commerce guide. I can compare it to the interterritorial transfer records. What time range do you want? I don't know. Say, the last ten years? I'm just looking for trends, not details. That's easy enough. Give me a couple hours. I had just finished talking to her when both Graviton and Proc sensors, now sequenced around the block ping, which was still steady and loud, went crazy. An entrance cone appeared in our path. Impossible. Impossible! This far into Choral Prime's gravity shadow, it simply could not have happened. Its presence was simultaneously confirmed, though, by proximity alerts. A vessel of size where none had been only moments before. And I was completely, utterly floored. I didn't freeze, but I didn't react beyond confirming sensors. I had no idea what to do. I didn't have scenarios prepared for this. I won't even say I was caught flat-footed, because that implies more diligence would have left me better prepared. But I'd never heard of this, never trained for it, and never once imagined such a thing occurring. It would have remained a mystery, too if there hadn't been a graviton telltale from much further off. Twenty-two exit cones from within the flotilla at the exact same moment. The bridge chatter was as crazy as you'd expect, with Elorada calling for Carmi, and everyone else in shock and near panic. I chimed in just enough to let them know I was on top of it, then called Bin Roggenstein down in engineering. Twenty-two in... 
One out. Have you ever seen this before? Ja, he replied grimly, but only in most desperate fights. Will be drone, AI, an energy gun, uh, maybe gun, some have warheads. Is furthest anything can star jump into stellar well. Most all miss jump, loss is terrible. Many times all are lost. Baron wants us very bad. Drone AI will be booting up now. Must to be offline for this. Takes two minutes. If Jacques attack now, it cannot fight back. But the robot was just out of effective DEW range, and missiles would take too long. I told him this. Eh, Griselda gun's not good enough anyway, he offered as a sort of solace. Polinium colonite composite armor. Thirty centimeters thick all around. Could not punch through with new packs even at close range. I thanked him and closed the call, then butted into the command channel to drop all the bad news I had. You can't hurt it at all? Ailareta asked fearfully. Not without some kind of guaranteed lucky shot, which means it wouldn't be luck at all. Baron Descu knows about the data block. I think it was his idea to begin with. He doesn't want us dead or the flotilla would have hit already. He wants us to wait for him. No escaping, no oblique jumps. And with this thing out there, he owns the road. What are our options? I don't know yet. Let me study this. I'll get back to you. Feeding params from the live nav readings into my recently debugged and polished simulator, as well as from a pan-military vehicular database in my own archive, uh, not strictly legal for civvies to possess, but pretty widely circulated in the industry, I threw five separate first strikes of various forms at a virtual drone that seemed close to what was parked nearby. These scenarios were all updated with real-time information as it was gathered by ship sensors. I even altered a few things by hand, tweaking them to be as close to our actual S2 as possible. All five sims, composed of direct lantern gun and missile attacks in different formations, failed. Badly. The drone wasn't put out of action in any of these scenarios, while Griselda was destroyed outright in three, and the Sims covered only the first 32 seconds of combat. The gulf between Civi and Miltech hardware never looked so wide or bleak in my life. By now, the robot was wide awake, and like I figured, it did not press for attack. Instead, it swept us with sensors, like a careful gardener with a fine mist hose, and maneuvered into what looked like an interception vector. It approached slowly, pushing out reaction mass conservatively. At the same time, it broadcast power down and heave to orders in several languages, as did the military types way out at the edge of the system, they having orchestrated it all very carefully. The effect was impressive, I must say. The flotilla had to have broadcast their challenges some 52 minutes before all the drones jumped. Listening carefully to these messages, I noticed that they never actually mentioned any drones or immediate interception. It was all just harsh rhetoric about disarming weapons and not opposing legal humanitarian actions. 
about being labeled pirates and getting dealt with accordingly. Their timing was perfect, and they'd crafted their words so as not to appear weak or foolish in case none of the drones had made it through. It was a cagey show and might have been devastating in other circumstances. Carmi was in her chair now and sounded pretty flinty. After everything Barlow had thrown at this ship and its personnel, that wasn't surprising. I kept poking and tweaking the simulations, massaging every detail I could. There was very little wiggle room, but under one approach, I could take down the drone with a missile barrage to a single point on its hull. Every rocket in both magazines had to hit, along with concurrent target strikes from the new packs to act as a distraction. That would have been heartwarming if Griselda wasn't also shown to be destroyed by a simultaneous counter-strike. And I couldn't even repeat that level of success a second time, no matter how often I ran the sim because of various randomizing factors. There was something I was missing here, something else I needed to do, but it was all a gray wall. All options seemed the same and equally pointless to pursue, and I needed to clear my head, if only for a few minutes. My latest nerve block wasn't really cutting it, and my ear was killing me. I was feeling masculine, read that childish, and thought it might seem weak if I called up Ira and begged for more pain management. So I took a walk to the galley and rummaged through an emergency med kit stored there. I came up with a second nerve block that I wrapped around my head, just above the other one. <laughs> I must have looked so cool. Be that as it was, I went and popped in on the passengers. All three sat on the central sofa of the common room. Rena was off to the side, and Carmi stood before them, explaining the situation. I smiled when I came in, mostly to allay the captain's instant anxiety, as if she expected me to be bearing horrible news. I needed a breath. Plus, I wanted to check on Syndra here. She's trouble. Shut up, Spacer, the girl put in, getting up and coming to me. You should be resting. You look like you crawled out of a toilet. And good shift to you, too. Can I get anybody anything? The nonsense you speak, she said with her usual brusqueness. She took my hand and actually guided me to a chair. That's a fact, Carmi added, making way and helping me sit. I must have seemed wobbly, but the second nerve block was beginning to help, and I felt a bit better. Update? I don't mind admitting that we're outgunned. We need a different kind of plan. I'm working on one. Gaela and Susan Batuela had stood when I entered, and started to offer thanks for having been involved in their escape, but I waved it off. We have a hostile vessel in front of us and one coming up behind. Oh, oh, and there's a military flotilla on the way that sounds very grumpy, too. You should be cursing, not thanking me. Feel free. Everyone does it. Carmi and Sindra both wore looks of exasperation, which made me chuckle. Then the captain continued the conversation I'd interrupted. Miss Vernays, you're a citizen of the Baron's holdings, right? Ja, my family are all in Duenda. And how about you, ladies? 
Well, I'm from Sandazar, Susan said. Ain citizen. I don't even have a noble space visa. Gaela and I met on Barlow. I am citizen of Bianla Riches, her wife put in. Holding is not friendly with Descu, but is safe passage agreement for citizens. Have a lion's green card. Can stay here. Would like to. The captain nodded, then said, Okay, Miss Vernays, what do you want to do? My family will be worried. Matra, she and Patro are... were... The girl looked tired, angry. I should probably go home, but the Baron's people could put me back on Barlow. Why in God's name would they do that? I asked. But I knew it was the sort of remarkably stupid and therefore horrifically possible bureaucratic thing that could happen. Why does any government do what it does? Carmi supplied, echoing my inner sentiments. Stay with us, then, at least until Greenbelt. We can arrange safe passage for you there. The mention of her father had soured the girl's mood. Not that she or any of us were in a good one. But she looked from Carmi to me, then stepped over and gave us both a bear hug. It was an awkward embrace, with Carmi standing up and me sitting, and the girl managed to include my ear in the operation. I cried out. Oh, Spacer, you should be more careful. Yeah, next time I see it coming, I'll grab a shield. I trailed off, thinking. What was that guy's name again? The women all noticed my sudden distance, and Carmi touched my arm. You okay? I stood quickly, surprising them all, and hobbled for the hatch. I'll be in gunnery, I called over my shoulder. I have work to do. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at Gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.